This is the first Sunday of 2018, so or we're starting the new year off. Uh, this will be the longest and shortest sermon you've listened to me preach this year, so that's exciting. Uh, the uh, credit for this sermon is going to go to several different people. Initially, it's going to go to Nancy Terryberry. Uh, when she was visiting down Tennessee, she visited a church and heard uh, the preacher preach the entire Bible in 30 minutes. Uh, she's like, this would be really interesting to see us do it Gramble. So she, she had brought the bulletin and I listened to it and I found out uh, that it had been adapted from a sermon called Preach the Entire Bible in One Message and all different titles. Uh, I trace it back to a guy named Ray Pritchard who traced it back to a guy named Ryan Whitley. And quite honestly, we can't really figure out exactly who originated this idea. Uh, but this morning we're going to adapt it and kind of take it. But I want to thank Nancy for kind of bringing it to my attention uh, it was really, really interesting the way she explained it, and it was really, really interesting when I looked through the notes that she had brought, and as I saw different uh, variations on this idea, I'm like, well, this would be really neat, uh, especially considering the, the plans that I've been looking at through the rest of this year. One of the things I had planned to do throughout 2018 is go through the entire Bible, uh, not book by book or verse by verse, but go through and look at God's overarching story uh, the upper story, we'll talk about this more in a future sermon, but his upper story and then the lower story and how it relates to us uh, beginning in Genesis and going all the way through Revelation. And it just seemed like this would be a really interesting way to introduce the idea. Uh, and it's just really interesting. There was a slide up on the screen earlier talking about God's Bible and how God's story is found in it. Uh, and then Wanda shared that thing from the Gideon's Bible this morning, kind of re uh, introducing the same idea. So I'm going to just begin. Uh, and like I said, this is adapted from a lot of different people. Uh, but I want to ask you, what can you do in 30 minutes? And it's not going to take us quite 30 minutes. We're going to get through in less than 30 minutes. But what can you do in 30 minutes? I, I like to read. I can read fairly quickly. Uh, but how much can you read in 30 minutes if you sit down and you're focused on reading? How much television can you watch or how, how much music can you listen to? How many projects can you start and finish? How many phone calls can you return or how many emails can you answer? And for different people, that's going to be different things. Uh, but just suppose you have 30 minutes or in our case, somewhere between 25 and 30 minutes. Could you tell the entire story of the Bible in a half an hour or less? I think a lot of us would initially say, well, that would be really difficult to tell the entire story of Scripture in a half an hour. Uh, when you think about it, the Bible's a pretty big book. Uh, that's a lot of stuff to cover in 30 minutes or in one message. There are 66 books. There are at least 40 authors. There are three different languages that the Bible was originally written in. It was written in a time span of over 1,500 years. There are over 1,100 chapters. 31,000 verses, over 800,000 words in the English language. Could you sum all that up in one message in less than half an hour? And that's our goal this morning. Uh, so get ready. We're going to start in Genesis and we're going to go straight through Revelation. I, there's no PowerPoint because there was only one slide. But if you look in your bulletins, there's a handout. There are six sections, six acts, six divisions that we're going to look at this morning. And I kind of left one of them blank if you want to uh, fill these in. 
So here's the entire story of Scripture, God's story, told in six acts that you can remember. Number one, act one, God creates everything. Genesis 1-1, we probably all know how that starts. In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. In six days, God created everything. And then Scripture tells us on the seventh day, He rested from His work. That's entire Genesis chapter 1 right there. God created in six days. He took the seventh day off and rested. That's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 tells us about Adam and Eve. It gives us some specifics about creation. It says God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. He breathed life into him. He created Eve from a rib from his side and he placed them in the garden. They two became one flesh. It says they were naked and they walked with God. There was no shame and they worked the, the garden. And that's act one. God created everything. Everything was perfect. Mankind walked in perfect unison with one another and with God. Act one. God creates everything. Act two. Man rebels against God. The serpent appears. We, we find out that the serpent, he's also called Lucifer. He's called Satan. He's called the accuser, the deceiver. And he deceives Eve. She eats the fruit that God says, don't eat. You can eat anything you want, but don't eat that fruit. If you eat that fruit, you're going to die. And the serpent tricks Eve. She eats it. She gives it to her husband. And even though he knows he's not supposed to do it, he eats it anyway. And they rebel. And God holds them accountable. He says, if you do this, you're going to die. And God holds them accountable. Romans 5.12 says, through one man, sinner entered the entire world. And that's where we see right here. Act 2. We rebelled against God. We sinned against God. This was the defining moment in all of creation and all of humanity. The great turning point. And from this point on, nothing is ever going to be the same again. All of a sudden, they went from being naked and unashamed in perfect union with one another, perfect union with God. Now they're ashamed. They're trying to cover themselves. They're trying to hide from God. And innocence is gone. When God confronts them, where are you at? They said, we were naked and we were hiding from you. And he said, who told you you were naked? He's, and Adam, instead of taking responsibility, what does he do? He starts throwing blame out. First he blames Eve. He says, well, this woman gave me the fruit and, and she gave it to me and I ate it. And then he actually blames God. He said, this woman you gave me. Instead of taking responsibility for his own actions, he blames Eve. He blames God. Then Eve blames the serpent. Nobody mans up. Nobody takes responsibility. And then there's judgment. They're cast out of the garden. God has to kill an animal and cover them with skins. The world becomes unfriendly. They're now on their own. Their work and their, uh, their labor is going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. We see that their son Cain kills their son Abel. There's more curses. There's more judgment. But even then, there's still grace. Remember, God's the one who covered them with the animal skins in the first place. Even though there's sin and there's judgment... That there was grace. That was his sign of grace. And then through Genesis chapter 4 and 5, we see civilization spreads. Mankind goes out into the world. They form these large cities and there's sin and there's death. And then things go from bad to worse. And in Genesis chapter 6, God finally says, I've had enough. I've had enough of this. The earth is so bad and so full of evil that it actually says God says he was sorry he even created it. And he finds this man, a righteous man named Noah and his family. He says, I'll tell you what I want you to do, Noah. Build a boat and get ready. I'm going to destroy the whole world. I'm going to save your family. 
And I'm going to save enough animals to repopulate the earth. And then the flood comes and there's more judgment and there are only eight people left. And there's judgment, but even in the face of judgment, there's grace. God saves Noah. God saves his family. God saves creation. And he begins again. After the flood, you have three sons of Noah. And they go out and they repopulate the entire earth. And generations come and generations go. And we stray again and we walk away again. They build these huge civilizations. They build this tower and say, we're going to build a tower and go straight up to heaven. And God sees all that stuff and he says, I've got to put a stop to this. And he confuses the language there at Babel. And then he scatters people all across the world. And that's the end of Act 2. Act 3. The world's in a pretty bad place. Mankind continually goes wrong. God has to judge man. But there's always grace. That's something we forget. There's always grace. A lot of people try to divide God up into where there's the God of the Old Testament, wrath and anger and judgment and punishment. And then there's the God of the New Testament, love and grace and mercy. God always had grace and mercy and love. If he hadn't, he'd have just wiped the earth out and that would have been the end of it. But then something happens in Genesis chapter 12. We meet a guy named Abram who's later going to become Abraham, and God calls him. He's prosperous. He's middle-aged. He's a pagan. He's from Ur. And God says, Abram, I want you to pack up. I want you to take everything. I want you to go to where I tell you to go. Well, where am I going, God? Don't worry about that. Just get up and let's go. And Abram does it. And he becomes an outstanding demonstration of faith. He's even listed later on in the book of Hebrews. It says it was credited to him as righteousness because he believed. But Abram wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes along the way. But God sets this plan in motion. You can actually divide the entire Old Testament up in two ways. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God creates the human race. That sums up the first 11 chapters. God creates us. And then beginning in Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Malachi, God has this group called the Hebrew race or the Israel race. Where he's going to have this plan where he's going to fix all these things. And he begins this process that we call redemption. Abram, who later becomes Abraham, him and his wife Sarah, they have a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a lot of sons, the most important one being Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt serving the Pharaoh. He takes his family there. There's a famine. They all end up in Egypt. And there's about 70 of them when they get down to Egypt. And God blesses them and prospers them. But they stay there long enough that the Pharaoh dies off. And eventually a Pharaoh rises up who doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember those people. And for 400 years, God's people, they suffer in bondage. And then God lifts up a guy named Moses, the deliverer. And he goes before Pharaoh. And what does he say? He says, let my people go. We're out of here. Pharaoh says no. So God sends these ten plagues upon it on Egypt. And the last one is important. The last one was the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn children, the firstborn animals and everything. And through this plague, God initiates this idea of blood covering sins. The Passover. He tells the people, he's like, I want you to kill a lamb and I want you to spread the blood over the doorpost. And if you do that, when the angel of death comes through, I'll pass over and I'll spare. And it's all pointing to something really, really important in just a minute. 
So Moses leads the Jews. He leads the Hebrews. He leads Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go into the desert heading back to this promised land that God says he's going to give them. At Mount Sinai, God gives his law, the Ten Commandments. And that's in Exodus chapter 20. They send out 12 men to spy out this land. It's a land that the scripture says is filled with milk and honey. But it says there are giants in the land. And out of these 12 guys, 10 of them say, we can't do this. God, this is impossible. We can't do it. But there, there were two faithful ones, Joshua and Caleb. They says, we got this. Did you see what God did for us? We got this. But because they didn't believe, because they sinned, because they kept turning back for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. They wander around. Moses doesn't even make it into promised land, but they have Joshua. And he finally delivers the people there to the promised land. And then they divide the land up into the twelve tribes. And then there's this really crazy period in the book of Judges where God raises up these judges to fight these enemies and to lead the people and point them back to him. And it says some people did right, but most people did what was wrong in God's eyes and they did their own thing. Scripture says every man did what was right in his eyes. And people continued to wonder. But you see some really interesting people throughout here. You see Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson. We meet a lady named Ruth. And through this entire period, God leads his people with prophets and priests and judges. And he tries to bring them back and he keeps telling them, if you'll just come back to me, I will keep my word. I will prosper you. I will bless you. And for a little while, the people say, yeah, we'll do that. But they always turn away. They always go back. And they finally said, Lord, we've had enough of these judges and priests. and pro Give us a king like all the other nations. And God says, I don't think you want that. Let me be your king. No, God, we really want a king. He's like, I really don't think you know what you're saying. No, Lord, we need a king. So God gives them a king. He gives them the exact king they deserve. And they get King Saul, who started out pretty good, but end really, really bad. And then from that, we get little David, who defeats Goliath and becomes the king and he writes psalms. But we know David had some hang-ups too. David had some flaws. A man after God's own heart. And he was a murderer and a liar and adulterer. And his reign would even be tarnished by sin. And then came his son Solomon. Whose scripture says is the wisest man who ever lived. We've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night. A book that he wrote later in his life. And it's really interesting. And he, he spread Israel to its greatest boundaries. But yet he married all these foreign women and they brought pagan gods in. And at the end of his life, it was shambles and it was a wreck. That's in 1 Kings chapter 11. And meanwhile, those sacrifices that began when they came out of Egypt with the Passover lamb, they're still going on. They've got the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now they have a temple in Jerusalem. And day after day, year after year, they're sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because of this sin problem that began all the way back with Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked and God had to kill an animal and there was blood that had to cover their sin and it's still going on. One writer described it like this. A river of blood continued to flow from the altar. High priests came and went. And after Solomon's death, because of their disobedience, God split the nation in two. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern ten tribes had a, just one bad king after the other. And finally in 722 B.C. they were taken into captivity and they were wiped off the face of the earth. Never to be brought back. 
The southern kingdom was made up of two tribes and they had some good kings, but they continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They continued to do what they want until finally in 586 the Babylonians come in and wipe them out and carry them off into captivity. And then you have this list of prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, who continued to warn people about their sin. said, if you keep sinning like this, God's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring wrath. He's already destroyed the kingdoms and sent us into captivity. If you keep this up, it's going to get worse. But there was always a message of hope and grace. But if you turn back to God, He will be faithful. He will bring us back. He will restore us. Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant who was going to come and save his people. Jeremiah wept over the people in the sin. Daniel explained God's mysteries, dreams, the handwriting on the wall. And for 70 years, God's people were in exile and captivity. And this was God's chosen people. The one he was going to bring the Messiah from. The one he was going to bless all nations. And it was a hard, difficult, humiliating time. And finally, God raised up two men. He raised up Zerubbabel, who took a small group back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah went back and rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And then a short time later, you have the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, gave a message saying, get ready. God's getting ready to bring the promised one. God has made promises that he's going to keep. And as the Old Testament ends, there's this sense of expectation and excitement because they know God is on the threshold of doing something incredible and the people are waiting. God made promises. The prophets had spoken. What's God going to do? And that's the end of Act 3. Act 4, God is going to accomplish redemption in the most unlikely, unusual unexpected way possible. And we just got through getting through the Christmas season. Scripture says when the time was fully come, when everything was exactly the way God wanted it to be, God sent forth His Son. We know it. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. But it wasn't just any baby. It was the seed of the woman, the son of David, the one whose name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where the story began. When God cursed the serpent, God said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. You're going to strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And that's the very first prophecy of Jesus. Shepherds glorified him. Angels announced his birth. Wise men from the east brought him gifts. In Matthew 1.21, Joseph was told to call him named Jesus which is a form of the name Joshua, which means the Lord will save. You see John the Baptist out in the wilderness, the last of the true Old Testament prophets, pointing people back, saying God's going to do amazing things. He says he's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He was baptized by John, tempted by the devil, misunderstood by the religious leaders, feared by some, hated by others, But most people, when they heard the message, they were glad because he came to bring freedom and to set the captives free. He was full of grace and truth. He was the fullness of God in human form. The Bible says he went around doing deeds to bring glory to the Father and point people to the Father. 
He caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And he invited all who were weary to come to him and he would give them rest. He taught God's law. He embodied God's love and he fulfilled God's promises. And his message was for everyone. John 3.16 said God loved the entire world and sent his son. He spoke in parables. He was a friend to sinners everywhere. He continually told those who were following that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. They would beat him. They would crucify him. But he would raise from the dead on the third day. And they still didn't understand with all they saw and all they heard. In the garden the night he was betrayed, he prayed in agony saying, Father, if there's some other way, can we do that instead? But whatever you've chosen... And Scripture says before the creation of the world, God knew what had to happen. And Jesus says, your will be done. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The disciples abandoned him. Caiaphas accused him. Herod mocked him. The soldiers beat him. Pilate condemned him. And then he was crucified between two common criminals. And even then he still cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last breath. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But it didn't need to be his tomb because he wasn't going to stay there. On the third day, two women went to the tomb to take care of his body and he was gone. An angel in Luke 24, 5 and 6 says, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He is alive. And then for over the next 40 days, he appeared to his disciples. He appeared to a lot of people. And his message was, God has been glorified. The Father has been glorified. I'm alive. Redemption is accomplished. And then he said, Go tell everybody. Go into the world, Matthew 28, and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them what I told you. And then he ascended to heaven, end of Act 4. There's two more to go. Act 5, God creates the church. For ten days the disciples waited and prayed. Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem and wait, and you're going to see God do things that you've never seen before, so they're waiting. That's Acts chapter 1. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power like a mighty rushing wind. It said there were tongues of fire on their head. They began to speak in foreign languages that they didn't know. And people heard it and said, what is this? What's going on? And then Peter preached and 3,000 people joined the church that day. And in Jerusalem, God's word was fulfilled. God's church was created and began to grow amidst persecution and opposition. And then as the persecution grew, it spread throughout Judea, Sumeria, then Galilee, and then through the known world. And then you see guys like Peter. You see the Apostle Paul, who started out as a religious leader named Saul, who persecuted the church and the other disciples. Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and these guys, they take the gospel, the good news of Jesus into the entire world. And the word of God spread. 
James, Jesus' half-brother, a leader in the church, he writes letters. Peter writes. John writes. And eventually what we have called the New Testament is completed. And now the word of the Lord has been completed and it's spread and the disciples continue to multiply and the church continues to grow even in the face of intense persecution and opposition. And the message was the same then and it's still the same today. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen from the dead. And those early Christians would tell anybody who would listen. If you repent, if you believe the gospel, Jesus will give you power over sin, death, hell, over the world. Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the gospel message then and it's the gospel message today. End of Act 5. We're at 24 minutes and 21 seconds. I think we're going to make it. Acts 6, God completes redemption. You go all the way to the end of the Testament, you've got a really interesting book that when I first got here, we took, seems like we took forever going through that book, the book of the Revelation. And in this book, you find the final act of God's work. The final act of history culminates in an event we refer to as the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back. And the book of Revelation begins this way. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what would soon take place. That was 2,000 some years ago. And perhaps this morning we're sitting there going, well, how much longer can it be? If it's going to be soon and it's been over 2,000 years, when is this going to happen? People have been asking that question. And they continue to ask that question. And some people have wavered. But one of the messages you see in the book of Revelation, it says, If you hold fast to the end, I will come. Jesus Christ is coming again. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ is coming again. That's an amazing thought. It's unbelievable. I say it a lot and I'll continue to say it. It blows my mind to think about it. Acts 1.11 says, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. Scripture says one day the trumpet will sound, the skies will split, and he will descend to come take his people home. This same Jesus, not somebody like Jesus, not a group of scholars who claim to know the historical Jesus, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us is going to come back. He's going to come soon to New York City. To London, Beijing, Tokyo, Moscow, to Granville Summit. We get excited about celebrities and athletes and politicians. But coming soon to a city, a town, a village, a street, a home near you is the Savior of the world. And when He comes the second time, it's not going to be a Savior. He's already done that. It's going to be Judge and King and ruler. The first time he was the Lamb of God. When he comes again, he'll be the line of the tribe of Judah. And when he appears the second time, it says, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says he's going to come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. It says, After that, those who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. First Thessalonians four, sixteen and seventeen. You go back and read through the entire Bible. There's some awesome stuff in there, but the best is yet to come. God created man. Man rebelled. God initiated redemption. God accomplished redemption. God gave birth to His church. And God will complete redemption. 
If you imagine the Bible as a great sanctuary and every book in the Bible as a seat in the sanctuary, then we can say wherever you go in the Bible, you've got a great view because you see Jesus from every single seat. In Genesis, he's the seat of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the scapegoat. In Numbers, he's the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, he's the city of refuge. In Joshua, he's the scarlet thread on Rahab's house. In Judges, he's the perfect judge. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's the trusted prophet. 2 Samuel, he's the true son of David. In 1 Kings, he's the promise keeper. In 2 Kings, he's the jealous God. 1 Chronicles, he's reigning king. 2 Chronicles, he's our deliverer. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls. In Esther, he's Mordecai at the gate. In Job, he's my redeemer who lives today. In Psalms, he's the Lord my shepherd. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our true satisfaction. In Song of Solomon, he's the beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. Ezekiel says he's the son of man. In Daniel, he's that fourth man in the furnace. In Hosea, he's the faithful husband. In Joel, he's the one who restores. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the mighty judge. In Jonah, he's the foreign missionary. In Micah, he's our peace. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he's the Lord in his holy temple. In Haggai, he's the Lord of hosts. In Zechariah, he's the fountain of cleansing. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he's the promised Messiah. In Mark, he's the faithful servant. In Luke, he's the friend of sinners. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the ascended Lord. In Romans, he's the justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he's our righteousness. 2 Corinthians says he's the God of all comfort. In Galatians, he's the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. Philippians says he's the all-sufficient Christ. In Colossians, he's the fullness of God. In 1 Thessalonians, he's the Lord coming down from heaven. 2 Thessalonians says he's the judge coming with blazing fire. 1 Timothy, he's our mediator. 2 Timothy, he's our master. In Titus, he's the blessed hope. In Philemon, he's the one who paid our debt. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, he's the judge standing at the door. In 1 Peter, he's the chief shepherd. 2 Peter says he's the morning star. 1 John says he's the word of life. 2 John says he's the son of the father. 3 John says he's the truth. In Jude, he's the Lord coming. And in Revelations, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the theme of the Bible. The whole book is about him. If you know the Bible but you don't know Jesus, you've missed the whole point. Let us pray.